Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would use these minutes as we look into your word together to grow our understanding and our vision of Jesus Christ. That what it means for him to be Lord, what it means for him to be risen and exalted, what it means for him to be our savior, that these things would would grow, that we would have a bigger sense of what this means, that his victory over his enemies would be greater to us at the end of this time together. And I'm also praying, Lord, that you would grow our sense of discomfort at the forces that still defy him. And that you would use this time this morning to cause us to fear no darkness or no suffering, but to joyfully give our lives to the proclamation of the truth that Jesus reigns. And he comes with salvation in hand for all who believe in him. Lord, these are, these are big requests, but, but they're not big. These are things you've promised. These are things that you're capable of. These are the things that we know you want. So we're with faith, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, looking to you to do what you've promised for us now here in this time. And I ask this for the sake of your name here and among the nations. Amen. Please have a seat. passage that we come to today is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, passages to interpret in the entire New Testament. And by interpret, I just mean understand. Of all the tough passages, this is probably one of the toughest. And so before we even get into it, I thought it'd be helpful for us to ask the question, why? As in, why would God put a Verse or a collection of verses in his Bible that are so hard to understand. What's, what's God's purpose here? What can we learn from the simple fact that there are some parts of the Bible that are way harder to understand than others? And, and I, I want to answer those questions briefly by pointing to three opportunities. There's that word again, but three opportunities that a passage like this presents to us. And the first is that this passage gives us an opportunity, or passages like this give us an opportunity to love God with our minds. God gave us brains. They're an important part of who we are. Jesus highlighted this part of us when he he summed up the greatest commandment as, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And one of the best ways that we can love God with our mind is by thinking deeply and carefully about his word, which means that when we come to a passage that's hard to understand, this is giving us a unique opportunity to display and to put into action our love for God through hard thinking. The ache in your brain 
is one of the ways that you say, I love you to the person who gave you your brain. As you work hard to think his thoughts after him. So I encourage you to engage your mind this morning as, a, as an act of love to your creator. Second, a passage like this gives us a good opportunity for humility. I knew right away as I got into prep this week that I needed help. I needed help from other scholars, people who had studied this passage for a lot longer than me. I needed help from the Holy Spirit. And, and when we come up against passages that we don't understand right away, when we come up against parts in God's word that don't make sense to us, it's a good reminder that we don't know everything and we don't have everything figured out. It's okay to have things fly over our heads every once in a while because it makes us look up and reminds us that there's a whole world up there. Now, we might not need to live in that world all the time. You might not need to live in, in the world of, of Bible scholars and, and that kind of thing. But we also shouldn't pretend that the world is limited just to the things that we are able to figure out. So it's okay every once in a while to have some things that are hard to understand that make us look up and go, okay, I, I, remember, I remember that I don't know everything. And we embrace the opportunity for humility. Third, this passage reminds us of our place. Here's what I mean by that. I'm, I'm fairly certain that this passage was not as hard to understand for Peter's original readers as it was for us. This is one of the things we're going to be talking about in the men's Bible study, either tonight or, or, or next month, as we talk about interpreting the Bible, that, that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay? Peter did not address this letter. If you go to the beginning of 1 Peter, it does not say to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nippon, Saskatchewan. This is not, that's what I mean by it wasn't written to us. It was written to a group of Christians living near the south coast of the Black Sea in what is modern-day Turkey. It was written to them. It was written for us. It was written down and preserved for us. But in order for us to really understand it, we have to dig into what was the human author, Peter, saying to his first readers, his first recipients, and how did they think? And when we understand that, then we're able to understand what the divine author, God, is saying through his word to us today. And so one of the things we're going to see here today is that Peter and his readers thought in categories that we don't tend to think in as modern people. And that's why this passage is so challenging to us. And we try and squish our understanding into it. And then we just, if we do that, we just wreck it. And so a passage like this reminds us to slow down and think, okay, as far as the human author, who's writing this? Who are the people he's writing to? How did they think? And then we remember our place. This is for us, but not to us. Now, I wonder how many other passages in Scripture we need to do that with, but we just don't because we assume we know what it means. We just, we read a verse, we dump our own thinking into it, and we go, oh yeah, I know what that means, and we move on. So today's passage is a good reminder that, that as we study God's word and as we seek to understand it, we've got to slow down, we've got to remember our place, and we need to do the work as, as best as we can of, of understanding how did they think, where are we, and, and what do we need to change, and, and so on as we seek to understand this the way that Peter's 
first readers would have understand it, understood it. So there's a lot more that could be said. I remember some of the inspiration for this, this introduction came from when John Piper was preaching through the book of Romans years ago, and he got to uh, some stuff in Romans 3, and he preached a whole sermon called Why God Inspires Hard Texts. And it was really helpful. You can go look it up and listen to it. This is just a little mini version that, that, I'm, that just came out of, out of the overflow of my thinking this week. And so I'm encouraging you to not be scared off by a, a tough passage. Let's love God with our minds. Let's embrace humility. Let's remember our place as we do our best to grasp what has God said here to us. So let's start. Let's move on to, to what is the big idea in this passage. The big idea. And this big idea comes as we remember context. Context is one of those words that means what has Peter already said? What other, what, what other stuff is going on? And in last week's passage, Peter was preparing his readers to suffer. And that's kind of what we saw that this whole last section of Peter. And maybe this is, this is perhaps the whole reason for this letter is to prepare this group of Christians to suffer and to make sure that as they suffer, they're suffering for the right reasons, that they're not suffering because they're rebelling against the government and their employers and, 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 and that they're, they're responding with evil, that when people hurt them, they're, they're responding with insults and, and poor treatment back. No, no, he's making sure that, that if these Christians are going to suffer, which is very likely that they're going to suffer for the right reasons. They're going to suffer for doing good. And, and, and that's, again, what last week was about, about being gentle, having a clean conscience, so that even when you're slandered, none of it sticks because everybody knows it's not true. And then he says in verse 17, he gives a reason. Here's, here's, here's why you needed to, to do this, to be gentle, to not repay evil for evil. In verse 17, he said, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You're going to suffer, seems to be the message here. And so you're either going to suffer for doing good or for, or for doing evil. And it's better to suffer for doing good. That's better. This is basically what he told slaves up in chapter 2. Remember, there's lots of slaves in the first century. And up in chapter 2, verse 20, he said... What credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So in other words, what credit is it if you suffer for doing evil? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So it's, it's good. He sold slaves. It's gracious in God's eyes to suffer for doing good. And now he's basically just saying it to all of us in verse 17. For all of us. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the big idea that we need to keep in mind as we go into this passage. This is the pastoral burden on Peter's heart that's that, that causes these words to flow out. He's wanting to help his readers suffer well. Now, he knows, or God knows, that we might ask why, or says who. Suffering for doing good doesn't sound all that great. To do the right thing and then get punched in the face for it, that doesn't sound that great. So you're saying it's better? Like says who? Why? Why is that better? Why is it better 
for me to do everything right and then still get hurt for it? Why is that better? And the answer that Peter gave in chapter 2 to slaves, do you remember what it was? It was that this is what happened to Jesus when he was arrested, well, first of all, all throughout his ministry, but in particular when he was arrested and tried and beaten and crucified, Jesus suffered for doing what was right. And as we do the same, we're following in his footsteps. And that's exactly what Peter now says to all of us in verse 18. That's really kind of what's going on here is the stuff he said to slaves. He's now just saying, this is for all of you. He points us to the example of Christ to explain why it's better to suffer for doing good than evil. And there's a few components of Christ's example that he points to, and we're going to look at them. And the first is innocent suffering. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Well, for, he says at the beginning of verse 18, or this word means because, because, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So notice that word also. In, in, in the original language, this is what leads the sentence. Because also, Christ suffered. Christ suffered innocently. And so Christians can remember as we suffer innocently, making sure that that's what we're doing. Remember, that's Peter's point. We remember that Christ suffered, though he was righteous. And so we embrace innocent suffering because this is what Jesus did. And as we suffer innocently, we are becoming like him. Christ also suffered. Now, at the same time, there's some key ways in which our suffering is not like Christ's suffering at all. There's some ways in which it's like his, but there's some major ways in which it's not like his. And this passage speaks to some of those ways in which Christ's innocent suffering is different from ours in some pretty powerful ways. And so we want to notice that just as we look at these words in verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Think about that word Christ. This is not a name. This is a title. To, to, the, to the Hebrew people, readers of scripture, Christ basically meant king. An anointed king. Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was God's anointed ruler. Destined to reign over all things as the son of God. And this Christ, this anointed king, he's the one who suffered for sins. Now this language of suffering sin comes from the Old Testament. Again, no surprise, Peter's quoting from the Hebrew scriptures all the time. And this language of suffering for sin was used many times to speak about animals as they were offered as, as sacrifices for sin. You remember the temple was, in the tabernacle before it, was almost a, a nonstop slaughterhouse. As animals were killed, time and time and time again and their blood spilled to pay for temporarily the sins of the people. And the people know, knew they got to live. They got to live another day. They got to enjoy God's blessings. Not because their sin was no big deal, but because that 
animal died instead of them. And that's where this language of suffering for sin comes from. You and I, well, this this language is reinforced even more by this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Who's the unrighteous there? That's you and me. We are unrighteous. We have hell to pay, literally, for our pride, our rebellion against God. But Christ, the perfectly righteous one, suffered for our sins. He died as our substitute instead of us. That's part of what it means when we say Christ died for us. Part of what we mean is he died instead of us. He fully absorbed the judgment and the wrath that our sins deserve. But unlike the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, Jesus only has to do this. How many times? What's our passage say? For Christ also suffered once for sins. One time. His sacrifice was that big, was that powerful, was that effective, was that worthy, that unlike the Old Testament where the priests had to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again and again, Jesus lays his life down once. This is something the book of Hebrews points to so many times. I encourage you to be familiar with that book in the Bible, to grow in your sense of the the beauty of Christ's death for us. Nothing can be added to to what Jesus did for us. Nothing can be taken away from what Jesus did for us. One time, once and for all, was enough. Effectively and permanently paying for our sins. So Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now one of the things Peter does here, which is a a sub-point here on this idea of Christ's innocent suffering, is that Peter points to the goal of his death. What was the, the goal, the aim of Christ's suffering, Christ the righteous suffering for the unrighteous? Christ dying for our sins. What, what, was his, what was his aim? It wasn't just to set us an example. I mean, Peter's pointing to the fact here that Jesus set us an example, but that, that wasn't just what this is about. It's so much more than that. It effectively accomplished something. And what it accomplished, among many things, it paid for our sins. It bought us forgiveness, the ability for God to forgive us without having to turn a blind eye to our sin. It satisfied his justice, his judgment. But here's a question we need to ask. Why is all of that good news? Why is it good to have your sins paid for? Why is it good to be forgiven? Why is it good to have God's justice removed from you? God's judgment, rather, removed from you. And the answer that the Bible gives, the answer that Peter gives, is that what makes all of this good, the greatest good in the gospel, is that we get to be reconciled to God. And Peter sums it up here by saying that Christ died once, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. See, Jesus didn't just die so that we could get out of hell and go on our merry way. He died to bring us back to what we were made for, relationship with our creator. We were made for God. 
And so often it's, it's interesting. I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. When Christians use the phrase, sin separates us from God, you know, often we're just using that as like a polite way to avoid having to say hell. You know what I mean, right? We, we're sharing the gospel and our sin separates us from God because that sounds better than your sin deserves God's judgment and you're going to be punished in eternity forever because of your sin. Now, both of those are true, but, but truthfully, if we really knew God in all of his glory, if we truly loved God the way that he deserves, then the thought of being separated from him forever would feel like hell. We were made for God. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16:11. If we knew God, we would thirst and pant for his presence like the deer in the desert pants for water, like, like David said in another psalm. And, and Christ died to bring us what our souls were made for and what our souls, whether we know it or not, are longing for more than anything else. He died to bring us to God, to reconcile us to our Father. And, and like we heard back in, on Christmas Eve from John 17, that, that Jesus died to invite us back, not just back, but in an even greater way than Adam and Eve had, to invite us into the very love that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for one another. And our destiny for all of eternity is to be filled with the very love that God the Father has for his Son and to be able to love God with the very love of God is so much better than just getting out of hell. It's so much better than just having a clean conscience. As wonderful as that is, why is it wonderful? Because bold we can approach his throne and and come close to our Father. That's, That's what makes this good. Jesus died to bring us to God. This is such a beautiful way of remembering the the, the goal of the gospel. And I, I encourage you to memorize these words. Memorize these words. Remember what this is about and what this is for. This this is our life. Now, let's not forget the context and think about how these words, that Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How did these words encourage suffering Christians? Well, isn't it true that when we suffer, one of the great things that Satan wants to tempt us with is to believe that God has forgotten about us or abandoned us or that he hates us, that this suffering is is God's way of getting back at us or that we're just truly alone in the universe that all of our fears are right and there's no one watching over us there's no one coming for us but when we remember when we remember that the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins has effectively brought us to God us who believe it we have been brought to God through Jesus, then we know that no suffering is going to separate us from his love. And I had to so stop myself here from going to Romans 8, because this is just Peter's way of saying in a short passage what Paul says a lot bigger in Romans 8. 
And, and how Paul in Romans 8 shows us that knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we've been brought to God through Jesus, means that, that we can face whatever suffering, persecution, nakedness, hunger, famine, sword, and we can face it all with confidence that, that these things are not keeping us from God, but rather that in all of them we're more than conquerors. And so we can suffer like Jesus. Think about how Jesus suffered. What was he doing in the garden? He's talking to his father. Think of what he's doing on the cross. He's calling out in lament to his father. Think of what he does right before he dies. He commits his spirit to his father. Jesus suffered knowing that all of his suffering was a part of his father's good plan. And even though he experienced the, the, the awful weight of, of his father's curse, he knew that even this was not going to last forever and that nothing would keep them apart. And so knowing that Jesus suffered once for our sins to bring us to God, when we suffer, we don't have to be freaked out by the panic that, oh no, this is it and all my sins are coming back to get me. And No, we can suffer like Jesus did in faith as we trust the God who has not forsaken us. might feel like it, but he hasn't. And we can enjoy the fellowship of sufferings with Jesus as we take up our crosses and follow him on the bloody road to Calvary. So it's encouraging, isn't it, to suffering Christians to be remembered that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring you, unrighteous though you are, that he might bring you to God. But Christ's suffering isn't everything there is to tell in the story. There's a, as Paul Miller is so helpfully reminded, there's a J-curve shape to the Christ's ministry. He descended into death, but that was not the end. There is a victory on the other side. And verse 18 goes on to tell us this, as it says, being put to death in the flesh. This is just halfway through verse 18 there. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What, what do these words mean? Well, being put to death in the flesh is, is, is pretty obvious. I mean, just to think again, as we're going to remember at the Lord's table next week, that Jesus had flesh. He had a body, muscles that ached and skin that got dry. He had a body, and, and in the flesh, he was put to death. He really died. His body really died. But that wasn't the end because, as the text here says, he was made alive in the Spirit. Now, this, this is one of those phrases in our passage that's hard to understand. So we got to pause here. This phrase arouses tons of questions. Some people, when they hear this phrase, automatically assume that this is talking about what happened to Jesus in between his death and his resurrection. Maybe it's because when they hear spirit, they think of kind of that part of us that doesn't die. So Jesus's body was dead, but he was alive in the spirit. But that's, that's almost certainly not what Peter's talking about here for a few reasons. First, just think about the fact that it says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit on the other side of being put to death in the flesh. Jesus' spirit didn't need to be made alive because his spirit didn't die. Just think about that. He was put to death in the flesh, 
But it doesn't make sense that when it says made alive in the spirit, it's talking about his spirit because his spirit didn't need to be made alive because his spirit didn't actually die. There's a second reason that this doesn't, this is not talking about what happened on Saturday and between Good Friday and Easter Sunday because time and time again in the New Testament, the, the verb here, it's a single, single verb in the original language for made alive that talks about Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's how this word is used by the other authors in the New Testament. So just, just think about it this way. If we were to just read this part, Christ being put to death in the flesh but made alive, if we just stopped it right there, what do you think about? Of course you think about his resurrection from the dead. Of course we think that. Because that's what this is talking about. And I, I want to suggest that that's what this is talking about. So what, what, what's going on with these words in the spirit? Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Remember what I talked about using our minds to love God by thinking hard? Okay, now we're going to put that into practice. I think there's two, as I studied this passage this week, there's two main ways that we can understand these words that make sense to me. The first is that the Spirit refers to the new resurrection life that Jesus was raised to. We know that as Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just come back the way he was, but Jesus was raised as the first fruits of the end times, new creation, resurrection of the righteous. Okay, so let's review the basic things. The Jewish people believed at the end of time, the dead are raised and then the new creation begins. And Jesus was raised from the dead as the first part of this new creation before the old creation has ended. And so back here, Jesus, before the end of the age, Jesus has already been raised from the dead as a part of this new creation life. And we see that as we look at Jesus in the, in the Gospels after his, after his resurrection. His body isn't even the same. I mean, in some ways it is. He's got scars, but he can enter into locked rooms and he ascends to heaven and he, he does things that a normal body can't do. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that he can't die anymore. So this is, this is a new realm that Jesus has entered into in his resurrection, the new creation he's already a part of. And this new realm, this new creation is marked by the operation of the spirit. That's a biblical theme we see. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about these bodies we have now as being, as being uh, fleshly bodies or physical bodies and our resurrection bodies are going to be spiritual bodies. And that doesn't mean floating on a cloud, wisp of smoke, not real, because that's the whole point is that, no, they are real. But it means that our resurrection bodies are raised by and empowered by the Holy Spirit and exist in this new creation era that's dominated by the Spirit. So that is one option for what Peter means here when he says Jesus was raised, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, that Jesus is resurrected and now lives in this new creation realm of the Spirit. There's a second option for what Peter means 
And here's, here's what we have to understand here. The word in, made alive in the spirit. That's not the only way that we can translate that word. Remember, Peter's reading, sorry, Peter is writing in the Greek language. And if you know another language, you know there's, you can translate stuff from one language to another in different ways. And this word in the spirit could just as easily be translated by the spirit. And that's actually how some other Bible translations translate it. The New King James, the Christian Standard Bible, made alive by the Spirit. So he was put to death in the flesh. In other words, he died in his body, but then he was made alive by the Spirit. This is certainly an idea we see other places in the New Testament that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8.11 talks about that. And that's maybe a little bit of a simpler way of understanding it. Maybe you're thinking, why didn't you just tell us that? Well, I'm not sure that it's not the other thing. But, but I mean, we know this is true. Both, both of these, here's why I'm comfortable sharing both. Because we know both of these are true. We know Jesus was raised from the dead and he does exist in this new creation realm of the spirit. Still a physical body, but, but empowered in the, by the spirit. And we also know that he was raised from the dead by the Spirit. So both of these things are true. But here's, here's something we can say for certain. Well, at least I think I can say for certain. I'm suggesting that as we read the word Spirit in verse 18, that should have a capital S on it. See, either way we're understanding here, either way we understand this, what's, taught, what's being spoken about here is the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And again, we see that in other Bible translations. The NIV, the King James Version, the Christian Standard Bible, again, they, they make this capital S Spirit. And I, I, I believe that's a, a better way of understanding this. Jesus was raised to life in the Spirit, by the Spirit. Either way, it's capital S. And either way, what's, what's fairly certain is that this is talking about his resurrection from the dead. Which means, which means that 1 Peter 3.18 is one of the best single verse summaries of the gospel in the whole Bible. When we think of one verse that sums up the gospel, we might think about like John 3.16. It's great. But I think we also got to think about 1 Peter 3.18. Think of what it tells us. It tells us Jesus' identity as the Christ, as the King. It tells us that he suffered once for sins. So we had a sin problem that needed to be dealt with, and the only way to deal with it was through by suffering. Sins deserved suffering. Jesus was righteous. We are unrighteous, but he suffered once for us. And it tells us the goal, that he might bring us to God. That's what makes the gospel good news. And he, yes, he was put to death in the flesh, but he didn't stay there. He was made alive in the spirit. So we see the, our state, we see who Jesus is as the righteous one, as the king, his death, his resurrection, and the goal. Now, this doesn't talk about everything, but this is a pretty good place to get a handle on some of the really important basics of the gospel. And once again, Think of the context. This is not just true, but this is so precious to suffering Christians. Yes, they might suffer with Christ, but that's not the end. On the other side 
is victory. On the other side is new life. On the other side is the vindication of the spirit of resurrection. Think of when, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was silencing his enemies. And when God raises us from the dead, so too, so too the shame heaped on us by the world will melt away. Jesus' resurrection will be ours. But that's not all. The tall side of the J-curve, if you think of Jesus' life going down and up, it keeps going into our third stop this morning, triumphant proclamation. Verse 20. You're going to need to keep loving God with your minds as we get into verse 20. Because it tells us this. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, Well, the ark was being prepared. Okay, what? These are some of the tough words that we need to untangle in this passage, but it's, it's, please just, it's so worth it. When we, when we get what these words mean, it's so good. Let's start by considering who are the spirits in prison. We might think about human spirits when we hear this, and there's this idea that We might see other places in Scripture that in between his death and resurrection, Jesus went to the the place where the spirits were kept. And that, that we can see that other places. That's not what this is talking about. In the New Testament, the spirits, without any other words attached to it, like without the spirits of the dead or spirits of the righteous, just just the spirits in the New Testament is pretty much always talking about supernatural spirits angels or demons. So if we read this verse with the rest of the New Testament in our minds, we're going to think the spirits in prison, these are supernatural spirits, angels or demons who are in prison. And that makes sense because it says they're in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared. What do we know What do we know about spirits, supernatural spirits, who did not obey in the days of Noah? Well, we we actually know a fair bit. If you have your Bible open, and always remember if you don't, we've got Bibles at the back by both the doors that you can use. But I invite you to turn to Genesis 6. Jordan preached on this sermon, preached, preached a sermon on this passage over a year ago but I think it'll be helpful for us to review. Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Sons of God is a phrase used in the Bible to talk about powerful angelic beings who have authority under God to rule this world and this universe. Job 1 says, There was a day 
I didn't write down the verse here. I think it's verse 10 or thereabouts. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So this is, this is the, the, what we could say is the cosmology or the, the way that the ancient people, the way that the authors of scripture understood the world. There is a collection of powerful spiritual beings known as the sons of God. And they come together regularly in a divine council over which God, the God, Yahweh, presides. This divine council is spoken about in Psalm 82, verse 6. This is one of those psalms that I'm actually really looking forward to preaching on now. Psalm 82, verse 6. God has taken, sorry, Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, small g gods, he holds judgment. See, God ruling over the assembly of the small g gods. And in verse 6, I said, you are gods, small g gods, sons of the most high, all of you. And he goes on from there. And so what's going on in Genesis 6 is it's describing some of these small g sons of Some of these small g gods, some of these sons of God, powerful supernatural beings that have been given a job in ruling this universe, leaving their post as they're consumed with lust for these humans that God made. Taking on human form, as we know angels can do. We know angels in the Old Testament can take on human form. They can eat food. They can do all kinds of stuff. And having children with these women. And this was the situation that caused God, we see that where after this happens, he says, 120 years, which, which is him saying, as best as we can understand, I'm going to wipe out the earth in a flood in 120 years. I can't put up with this. This was an abomination. And then in Genesis 6, verse 4, speaks about the Nephilim. As best as we can understand, these were the offspring of these sickening unions Physical babies, but powerful. These were the giants, the, the, the heroes that walked the world in the ancient days. Now, needless to say, modern people are really uncomfortable with this for obvious reasons. And so some, again, some people who are smarter than God have tried to rescue the Bible from God by inventing all kinds of creative ways to not have to deal with the basic meaning of a passage like this because we in the modern world have become convinced of some myths. Namely, that if we can't see it with our eyes, it's not real. If we can't explain it perfectly, then it doesn't exist. And, so, and also that we're so much smarter than people who lived thousands of years ago. All of these are myths, and I wish I could take more time to unpack them. We think that this stuff about gods and rulers and sons of gods was stuff the ancient world had to invent to explain away the things they didn't understand. And actually, it's the opposite. The truth is, testified in Scripture, and I think we all know it deep down, is that we live in an enchanted world. We live in a haunted cosmos, as one author has put it. We live in a world where God presides over a divine council of powerful beings, good and evil, who all report to him. We live in a world in which powers, good and evil, wrestle with each other for control of territory and nations and destinies, like we read in Daniel 10. We live in a world described by the Apostle Paul in a 
Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is real Brothers and sisters, we live in a world shaped by invisible empires. And this was just normal for Paul and Peter and Peter's readers to think this way. This is normal for the authors of Scripture to think this way. Think of this. Think of how in in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews encourages his readers to practice hospitality to strangers. If you were to write a letter to some people and encourage them on why they should take in strangers, what would you say to them? You know what the author of Hebrews says? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That's how they think. You should show hospitality to strangers because it might be an angel. I had an encounter with an angel when I was 9 or 10. Very clear, undeniable. I know what it was. And I don't feel weird sharing that here in front of you because this isn't woo-woo stuff. This is just basic Bible stuff. We live in a world where angels with flaming swords guarded and perhaps still guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And armies of angels showed up to party with some shepherds when the Messiah was finally born. We live in a world where Michael and Gabriel are not just names. They're real beings and they're doing stuff somewhere as we speak. And we live in a world which early in its history, some of these powerful spirits left their proper place and had giant offspring with human wives. And in response, this was one of the key things that triggered God destroying the ancient world with the flood. This might seem strange to us. It was not strange to Peter. This was mainstream Jewish thinking in Peter's day. And we see this talked about in Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. See the same ideas here? 2 Peter 2.4 talks about the same things that these angels, when they sinned, God, he says he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So somewhere... In the spirit world, we don't know. There's a prison. This is the world we live in. There's a prison somewhere where these angels who sinned with the human people are locked up, incarcerated for watching the centuries and the millennia go ticking by, waiting for the final judgment. Dark and lustful powers waiting on the final judgment. And these are the spirits whom the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, goes to proclaim his victory over. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here in 1 Peter 3, 20, sorry, 19 and 20. This is not Jesus in hell before his resurrection. This is Jesus after his resurrection by the Spirit, in the Spirit. We see all throughout Scripture that the Spirit leads people to places or takes people to places. In the Spirit, Jesus goes to this prison and declares his victory over these dark powers. He went and proclaimed. Just think about the difference here of when Jesus was on earth in the flesh in Matthew 4, that he was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
in weakness facing the onslaught of his ancient enemy. And now Jesus in resurrected strength by the spirit in the spirit is taken to this prison where he says, I've won. Can you just imagine this scene playing out on a human level? Imagine, imagine the hero of the story right after the moment of triumph, walking into the visiting room of a dingy maximum security prison, and the villain comes out, seething, unrepentant, chains rattling on the floor, and they pick up the phones on either side of the glass, and they lock eyes, and the hero says, I just came here today to tell you that I've won. And he hangs up the phone and he walks out. Like, doesn't doesn't that just give you the shivers? And and that's just a tiny little picture of, of what's going on here and is it any wonder why Peter points to this scene of the risen Lord Jesus proclaiming his victory over these rebellious spirits in power is it any wonder because this Jesus that we follow did not just suffer unjustly he's also a Jesus raised by the spirit who has triumphed over all the powers that are opposed to him and as we follow in his steps we know that we will share in his victory as well. Think of, it, think of it this way. The Roman Empire was just a front for the real power. The Roman Empire was just a puppet state for the real powers running the world. And Jesus has conquered all of them. And the day's coming when all opposition to Jesus is going to be crushed forever. So yes, yes, it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil if we're following in the footsteps of this victorious Savior. Now our passage goes on from there to talk about more about what happened in the days of Noah. And it goes on to talk about what this has to do with baptism. And believe it or not, I was going to try and preach this all in one sermon this week, and you can thank Jordan Dudgeon for saying, Chris, I think this is too much. So we're going to come back next week to verses 20 and 21. But for today, we're just going to end by glancing down at verse 22, where this section is rounded out by speaking about Christ's exalted ascension, the top point of the J-curve Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with, here it is, angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is the king of kings and not just the kings that we can see with our eyes. The capital S son of God has ascended and taken his spot at the head of the divine council and every small S son of God, every smaller, lesser power, demonic power structure, invisible empire is under his feet and must bow to his authority. So here's why we shouldn't be scared in all this talk about angels and demons and stuff. Because as we, under, as we understand who Jesus is, none of this makes us superstitious. You, you, I'm sure you've met some people who are superstitious, the kind of people who need to cast the demons out of their hotel room before they'll sleep there. And, you know, like, that this, this does, all this talk about angels and demons does not drive us to fear. Because the bigger we see the spirit world, the more powerful we understand these forces are, then we see Christ having triumphed over all of them, and our vision of Jesus just grows that much more. And so we don't live in fear, we live in a whole lot more confidence. And so as we come to the end of this morning, what, what do we do with a passage like this? 
Here's what we do with it. We believe it. We believe it when our own suffering threatens to choke our faith. We believe it when fear of being exiles threatens to choke our faith and make us want to hide. We believe it when we feel tempted to lash out and repay evil for evil. We believe it every step of the long, hard road as we carry our crosses behind Jesus. See, we're still on this first part of the downward descent, and we know our death is still coming. But we believe in the victory of Christ when the darkness feels like it's going to win. We remember as great as the darkness is, Christ is greater by far. As powerful as the darkness is, Christ has conquered it all. As black as the grave is, the light of Christ shines brighter still. And on the other side of every death is life everlasting. So, Christian, you will suffer in this life. You will suffer at the hands of humans. You will suffer by the malice of dark forces. We're going to hear in just chapter 5, your enemy the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. Some of this suffering you will taste this very week, either human or supernatural. And none of that is a reason to fear because we know who we follow. And we see in this passage his path and we know that we're just a few steps behind. Charles Simeon, this won't be the last time I read this quote, famous preacher from a few centuries ago, said in a letter to his friend, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking in my legs, the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. We need to believe that. We're going to sing together here. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. Pillage my house. Take what I have. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And Heavenly Father, I'm praying that you would help us to believe that. That you would help us to believe that Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to you being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to those disobedient spirits in prison and has now ascended to heaven high above all other powers. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and so may we be willing to bear suffering well, be that light or be that heavy. Transform our reactions and our responses and our outlook, God, as we remember the path that we're on. Help us to believe. For Jesus' sake, amen.